The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here, and uh, it is great to be with you. Uh, if you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. And before we look at God's Word this morning, I do just want to add on to maybe something that Braxton was saying or, or just affirm. Um, I, I have the great privilege of being the uh, chair of the RUF committee for our local presbytery for this region, and it really is a privilege, um, and that's because RUF is, is a wonderful gift that the Lord has uh, used in, on college campuses. Uh, many of us, many of you, uh, have experienced that blessing firsthand on the, uh, uh, when you're on, uh, in campus, uh, on, what am I saying? When you were in college, <laughs> uh, when you were in college, and uh, it's in those seasons that we often ask questions and maybe uh, decide what it is that we really believe, and are we going to hold firm to that? And ministries like RUF are vital uh, to meet students in the midst of those questions. And so, um, so I just want to reiterate and uh, just say I'm very thankful for Braxton and his work with RUF. His in, soon-to-be work with RUF, it truly is a jewel uh, in our uh, denomination. So if you have questions about RUF, you're welcome to ask me. Jason Little, who was in our first service, is one of our area coordinators for RUF. I, I know he'd love to talk to you. But this morning, uh, we are continuing with our sermon series uh, in the book of Psalms. So this summer, we're looking at various Psalms, and we're taking up Psalm 92 this morning, Psalm 92. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Um, the passage is going to be projecting just a moment on the screens in front of you. But Psalm 92 is a psalm that uh, is anonymous. Uh, we don't know who wrote it. It doesn't tell us in the title, and other scriptures that may speak of it or allude to this psalm don't give us a clear indication as to who wrote it. Now, when we come across anonymous psalms, sometimes people like to attribute it to David, to say, well, well David wrote it, and, and for sometimes that there might be good reason to do that, other times not so good. It's just better to say we don't know. <laughs> and we don't know who wrote this psalm, but what we do know is that this is a song for the Sabbath. That's what we're told in the title. It says, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. And so what we do know is that whoever penned this psalm, his intention was that this song would be sung on the Sabbath. That is, the people of God took their day of rest and day of worship, that, that these are some of the words that they would sing. It, it doesn't mean that they were singing this song every single week, that they sang it over and over and over again, but, but surely this would have been one of the songs on their lips. And as they went to worship and they sang these songs, what they sang was thanksgiving. That's what this psalm is. It's a song for the Sabbath, a song of thanks. So let's follow along, Psalm 92. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. 
The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. For you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we ask that as we come to it now, that you would fill our hearts with gratitude. And that our minds would be filled with thanksgiving when we consider all that you have done. When we look upon the work of your hands, Lord, allow thanks to be on our lips. And so we pray that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts and enlighten our minds. So that today and every day we would honor and worship you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So during our vacation in St. Louis a few weeks ago, my family and I, since we were very familiar with the city, having lived there for about a decade, we knew all the fun touristy things to do, and we did them. Uh, We spent a morning at the zoo, and the zoo is beautiful. We saw the sea lion exhibit, which is remarkable, and grizzly bears, and and the penguins. We, We spent the morning at the zoo, and we went to Ted Drew's and got frozen custard, because if you're in St. Louis, it's it's kind of a prerequisite of going. You have to go to Ted Drew's and get frozen custard, and, and you will thank me if you do that. Um, we did that one afternoon, and we spent a day playing at the City Museum, and we drove by the Arch and drove by the stadium. Unfortunately, we didn't get to go in the stadium and watch the Cardinals play. They were out of town. They didn't check with our schedule when they headed out west, but that's okay. But we did all these things that we knew to do because they, we had experienced fun and enjoyment in previous years of living there. But there was one thing we did while we were there that we had never done before, and that was on the morning that we were heading out of town. You see, before we drove out of St. Louis to return back to Roanoke, we stopped at this place we had never stopped at before. It was a luxury car dealership. It was out in the county near where we were staying. And, and we pulled into the parking line, we got out of the car, and we walked into the showroom. And the showroom was filled with cars that we had seen some on the road before, but never up close. Cars like Lamborghinis and Bentleys, Aston Martins and Rolls Royce, and Cole's absolute favorite, a $3.5 million Bugatti. <laughs> and it was beautiful. <laughs> It was beautiful, this place, and and as we looked at these cars, I I don't know if you've ever been very close to a Lamborghini or an Aston Martin, but but as we got close to them and we looked through the windows and we saw how they turned, but they didn't, you know, the different things would move, but they didn't make sound, like the way that they were constructed and made, that that these weren't just pieces of metal and and rubber, they weren't just machines, They they were almost like works of art. And in fact, the showroom felt like a museum. It was clean and pristine, and there were signs everywhere that said, do not touch the cars. (laughs) And instinctively, we just whispered when we spoke. (laughs) 
But as we were walking around the, the showroom and we were seeing these beautiful cars, one of the salesmen stuck his head out and he talked to us for a minute and I assured him, I convinced him we weren't there to buy <laughs> as though he needed any you know, convincing looking at what we were wearing and seeing the Odyssey we drove up in. Like, uh, I'll get the Aston Martin next time, sir. Thank you. Uh, no. <laughs> Once I convinced him we weren't there to buy, we were just looking, I said to him, these cars are so beautiful. And he said with absolute sincerity, he said, I know. And what I can't get over is that I've worked here for years, and some days I still can't believe that I get to be around these cars. He said, I, I get to talk about them, I get to learn about them, I get to sell them. I can't believe I get to do it. And as he spoke, I could tell that, that he had not only appreciation for these cars, but he had gratitude. He had thanksgiving for just being surrounded by them. And I mean, on one side, like, in one hand, like, how can you blame him, right? I mean, to be watching these cars coming in and out, these beautiful machines, how could he not be thankful? But then afterwards, I was thinking a little bit more about it, and I started to think, well, well, he had worked there for years. And I would think that after a few weeks, a number of months, a number of years, I mean, surely seeing them come in and drive out, wouldn't he start to get tired of them? I mean, because that happens with us, doesn't it? Familiarity, regular engagement with something. After a while, the shine, the gleam, the allure, it starts to wear off, doesn't it? I mean, it's not us with Aston Martins, but, but our new house, or our new car, or our new job, or that new relationship. A after a while, the, the awe and the wonder, like, it just becomes familiar and common, doesn't it? What was once awe-inspiring and gratitude-creating becomes common. It becomes familiar. It becomes ho-hum. And the truth is, is that this happens not just with the things of this world, not just with our possessions, not just with our careers, but sadly, sometimes this happens with our relationship with the Lord. Right? I mean, when we first believed and we first started reading the Bible, do you remember that? When your eyes were first opened to the wonders of God and your mouths were filled with song and our minds raced with excitement and we were overwhelmed with thanks, but, but over time, well, I've read that passage. And I've sung that song, and I've heard those stories. And we allow the familiar and the common to rob us of awe and thanksgiving. And friends, that's one of the reasons why we gather for worship every week. See, one of the reasons why we gather for worship is to have our gratitude renewed. I mean, this is a song for the Sabbath, because... We gather and we sing and we hear these words because in doing so, it breaks us out of our lethargy and it fills us with thanks. That's where the psalmist goes, how he begins the psalm in verses 1 through 3. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. It is good to give thanks. It is good to give thanks. That's why we gather to be reminded of why it is that we give thanks to the Lord and why. Well, for his works, that's where the psalmist goes in verses 4 through 5. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. 
At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. You see, we give thanks to God for his work, his work of victory. That's what we see in verses 6 through 9. Follow along. The psalmist says, The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. Now this psalm is picking up on a theme that we saw last week, isn't it? The theme of God's justice, of his rule over this world. The theme that though there may be wicked and evil in this world, that God will have victory over evil and wickedness. And this is a theme not just in Psalm 92 or the psalm we saw last week. This is a theme that shows up throughout the Psalter. If you were to read Psalms from 1 through 150, you would see this theme recurring again and again and again. That there is evil and there is wickedness in this world, but God will triumph. God will have the victory. So it might make us start to wonder, like, why do we need this recurring theme? Why do we need this reminding again and again and again? That God defeats the evil and he has victory over the wicked. Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? We need this reminding because when we look at the world, doesn't it look like evil and wickedness are actually winning? Psalm 73 says this, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And it feels that way, doesn't it? Like the wicked, the immoral... The cheaters and the liars, those are the ones who prosper. I mean, right, we look at the world, and isn't that what we see? Like, the evil and the wicked, they prosper. They, they have great wealth. They have great power and authority, and they use their power and authority to keep their power and authority. And they perpetrate evil and wicked. They seem to have lives of ease and leisure. Even our passage, verse 7, says, The wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish. And y'all, if that's all that there was, if this is all that our passage said, then, then why would we be thankful? But that's not all that there is, is there? Because look closely at verse 7. Yes, the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, but did you notice the word right before that? Though. <laughs> Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish. Though is a very important word there. Because yes, in the immediate, for a moment, it may seem like evil is advancing, that the wicked is triumphing. Though they sprout and flourish, what is their end? The passage goes on. They are doomed to destruction forever. You see, what the psalmist is reminding us of is the fact that flourishing and sprouting is just for a moment. I mean, even think about the analogy the psalmist used, right? They are like grass. Grass grows up quickly. It looks great for a little while, but, but it is easily cut down. It is easily uprooted. Verses 8 through 9 speak more of the, these enemies. For behold, your enemies, O Lord. For behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. Verse 11, my eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of evil assailants. 
He sees the psalmist sees the end of the wicked, that they are like grass. They will be cut down. They will be cast aside. The psalmist sees the victory of God. And that's what he's inviting us to see. That God triumphs over evil. He has victory over the wicked. And we see it not just in the psalm. We've seen it for ourselves in Christ. Right? Because when Jesus was arrested and beaten, when he was sentenced to death and crucified, for a few hours, for a few days, it looked as though evil and wickedness had triumphed, didn't it? I mean, if we had been there, we would have thought, our Lord, our King, our God, he has been defeated. The disciples thought that. You remember? They scattered at his death. And they hid away in locked rooms with fear. But if that was the end of the story, then they feared for good reason. Because evil and wickedness would have triumphed. But that isn't the end of the story. Because though Christ had died and was buried, he rose in victory. He rose in victory, defeating death and hell and the grave. You see, evil and wickedness could not contain him, but instead, Christ has been victorious. And we even see this in 1 Peter 3, when the apostle Peter speaks of Christ's triumphant ascension into heaven and tells us he sat down at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers being subjected to him. Christ reigns and rules over all. That is why we give thanks, y'all, for Christ's victory, that the grave could not contain him, that death could not defeat him, that enemies and wickedness, they may have their moment, but God has the final word. And so we give thanks for God's work of victory, but we also give thanks for God's work of establishing. He establishes his people. That's what we see at the end of our passage in verses 12 through 15. The psalmist writes, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So we see the contrast between the enemies of God and the people of God. The enemies, they're scattered and cut down, but the people, they're planted. The people of God, they flourish like the palm tree. So the palm tree, the leaves of the palm tree were used in festivals and times of worship. And so the analogy holds for us, like we are to be those who, who come and worship the Lord. That is our spiritual act. That we grow like cedars in Lebanon that have deep roots and long life. And that God establishes his people. Psalmist said, they are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. And so the image, the contrast is stark. The enemies, they have no root, unlike God's people. The enemies are destroyed, but God's people flourish. The enemies are scattered, but God's people reside in his house. This is the Lord's doing. He plants us and makes us flourish and establishes us. And he does it not just for a moment, but look at verse 14. They still bear fruit in old age. They're ever full of sap and green. So a week ago, Cole and I uh, cut down our neighbor's tree. So I was talking to my neighbor, and he, he mentioned that he was going to uh, have someone take down this tree that was right in between our yards. It was, 
It was on his side of the property, but it was bordering mine. And he mentioned, I'm going to bring someone out and I'm going to take it down. And, and I, I took a look at it and saw the size and where it was in proximity to the houses. I'm like, you know what? We can do this. In fact, we'll do it today because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking this thing is ugly and the faster we can get rid of it, the better, right? <laughs> and so he said, perfect. And so Cole and I, we grab the chainsaw, we grab our earbuds, we grab our goggles and our gloves and we go out and we start cutting right? And this tree is old and is dying. And so the chainsaw, I mean, it goes right through it, right? Like a hot knife through butter. I mean, it just cuts right through it. And the limbs are falling and we're taking out the trunk. And as the limbs are falling, there is no green in them. There's only rotting. And, and the trunk, as we cut through it, there, there's a little bit of sap. But that stump that remains, it's not very sticky. Because it was old, and it was dying. And that's what you expect from a tree that is old and dying, right? That there is no sap, that there is no green, that is rotted away. We expect that in an old and dying tree. And friends, sadly, sometimes we see this in people. That as we age, the joy of life fades. And the fruit of younger years withers. But God's people... Do you see what he says? God's people still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. See, friends, to see an older saint, I have to tell you, to see an older saint end well, there are few things more beautiful than that. To see one who, who, uh, who is continuing to bear fruit even to their last moments, that is a gift to them, but it is also a gift to us. It is a gift to the church. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I love that we are a church diverse in age, right? I love that we have expectant moms, babies to come. I love that we have infants and children and newborns and teens and young professionals and middle-aged. But I also love that we have men and women who have walked with Jesus longer than I have been alive. Who are demonstrations of faithfulness into their 70s and 80s and 90s. Y'all, that is a beautiful gift that the Lord gives us. And the psalm is telling us that we should expect to find that in our midst. That God not only establishes the young, but he establishes the old. That, that we are to bear fruit even into our end of years, our last years, right? We just did a sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit isn't just for those in their 20s and 40s and 50s. But we are to be bearing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control right up until our last breath. And that is something beautiful that God plants us and he causes us to flourish and he establishes all of our days so that even at the end of our days, we would say, verse 15, to declare that the Lord is upright, that he is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. That this is what is to be on our lips all of our days, all of our years, declaring who the Lord is and singing his praise and giving thanks and coming each Sabbath day, each Sunday to give thanks for his work. And friends, we need this reminder. And we need this example and we need these demonstrations of thanks. And we need these things because it is so easy to do the very opposite of give thanks, isn't it? I mean, just think about how easy it is to criticize. 
to critique, to focus on all the things that aren't going right. I mean, think about the words that you spoke this week or the stories that you gave your attention to or the words that were whispered, but, but I mean, like, honestly, they were probably yelled in your ears. How would you characterize those? Were they full of thanks or criticism? Let me just say, we need to be very, very careful of the person and of the whispers that are primarily critical. Because they will rob you of gratitude. They will rob you of thanks. And friends, it is so easy for our hearts to move in that direction. I mean, I feel it. I just had dinner with a friend the other day. He's a pastor uh, in this area uh, at another church. He's been pastoring his church like 17 or 18 years. He's a little older than I am. And we were having a meal, and we were sitting there, and we were talking. And so we were sharing about our lives, what's been going on. We are sharing about struggles. We are sharing about observations we're making about the world. We're sharing about what's going on in our churches. We're sharing about all of these sorts of things. And as we're sharing about these things, believe it or not, our conversations started to go in the realm of criticism. I know that's hard to believe. And critique. And all the things that are wrong. And it could have kept going in that manner. We could have spent probably hours sitting there and feeling very self-righteous about ourselves and very critical about others. But my friend, in that moment, when it could have went to this place of sitting in criticism and stewing in anger and lingering in cynicism, he broke us out of it. And he said, Penny, I've heard about all the difficulty and the struggle, but what is going well? He said, what do you have to be thankful for? And I'm glad he asked me. Because it jolted us out of criticism and critique, and it caused us to think of the works of the Lord. Now, y'all don't hear what I'm not saying. There is a place for critique. I mean, the psalmist is honest about the problem of the enemy. But the psalm spends far more time and more verses and more words on the works of the Lord than on criticisms of the world. In fact, four verses he speaks of the enemy out of 15. Four verses he speaks of the enemy, and the rest of the time he speaks of God's grace, of his work, of his might, of his triumph, of his establishing. He spends the rest of his time giving thanks for all that God has done. And friends, when we think of the works of God, how can we not give thanks? How how can we not have on our lips songs of praise to his name? How can we not declare the steadfast love of God in the morning and his faithfulness by night to make music, to be glad, to sing for joy at the works of his hands? Friends, when we see his work of victory in this world, when we know his work of establishing us and his people, we will say with the psalmist, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. And friends, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. Amen. Let us do that now. Father, we do thank you that you have have done a great work in our midst, that you have done a great work in our hearts and in our lives, that you have done a great work in this world, that you, through your Son, have triumphed over wickedness and evil, and you have established us as your people. And so I pray that as your people, we would give you thanks. 
that our hearts would overflow with gratitude at all that you have done. And so, Father, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to hold on to your great work so that we would sing of your thanks. We would sing thanksgiving and gratitude all of our days. And we pray this in Christ's name. God's people said together, Amen.